Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Sam Fankhauser, director of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. GRI was established by the London School of Economics and Political Science to create a world-leading center for policy-relevant research and training on climate change and the environment, bringing together international expertise on economics, finance, geography, the environment, international development, and political economy. I was excited for this discussion because Sam is not only deep in economics and climate change and the impact of climate change on the global economy, but also he comes at it from a very European perspective as he not only lives in the UK, but has thought about the impacts of climate change and been involved at a high level in the UK government and so on in climate change policy and initiatives. We have a great discussion today, diving deep into what motivates Sam to do the work that he does, how his views on climate change have evolved since he entered the space many years ago to today, but also big picture talk about all the different levers that we have and what needs to change and how it needs to change and what we can try to do to help it and what some of the headwinds are. And to be honest, it's similar topics that we cover in every episode, but given that each guest perspective is so different, we have wildly different discussions. And today does not disappoint in that regard. So let's get them out here. Sam Fankhauser, welcome to the show. Great to have me. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to speak with you for a number of reasons. One is that when I was prepping for this discussion, I click on the little tab that says research on your website. And I have to scroll down a long, long time to get through all the research, published articles, books, and such that you've written on this topic. That's one. Two is that, I mean, of course, you think about this on a global scale, but also, I mean, you're in the UK and you also spend quite a bit of time thinking about it from a UK perspective, which is different than we've represented so far on the pod or in my journey. And I think it's a very important perspective to understand. So thank you. Pleasure to be here. And it isn't just my stuff. I assume you looked at, it's a big institute of 50 people who produce all those good things. I did, although I didn't even have to get to all that other stuff because your stuff alone was a long, long list. So it is crazy the output that the institute produces in terms of volume, but also quality. Thank you. I mean, let's just start there. What is the Grantham Research Institute? And, and I guess the other thing is, since I know you're involved in some other things besides the Grantham Research Institute, maybe just give us an overview of how you spend your days or your work. So the Grantham Research Institute, we are a research center at the London School of Economics. So we are based at the university. Specifically, we are based at the university, which is focused and known for its social science research, so economics and the wider social sciences. And that's what we do. We are interested in understanding climate change from a social science perspective. A fair amount of what we do is sort of has an economic spent, but we are interdisciplinary. We have lawyers, we have geographers, we have statisticians, and we have political scientists. And we want to understand and inform 
the climate change debate from that particular angle. And in terms of the areas in climate that you focus on or the types of research that you take on, how do you go about figuring out where to apply those great resources that you've assembled? Yeah, well, although I just said we are based at the university, we sort of, we are not ivory tower people. So we do want to produce research that is sort of academically at the frontier. We are interested in exploring new issues, developing new methodologies, collecting new data, doing all those nice academic things that you'd expect the university to do. But we are also very keen to engage with decision makers in climate change policy and climate change practice. So we want to understand what's going on, but we also want to inform and influence what's going on. So our vision is better decisions are being made on climate change and the environment. And that kind of drives what we do and where we focus on. So it has to be sort of academically, intellectually, analytically exciting, but it also has to sort of have an impact on the debate. So we, for example, we work on climate change legislation, mostly here in the UK, but also globally. We have a a big database of 1500 climate change laws. That's academically interesting just to document the wealth of things that are going on in climate change policy. But it's also very policy relevant because people come to us and say, uh, if my country is thinking of passing a climate change law, what sort of stuff do we have to put in it to be successful? And I know that looking back early in your career and your studies and such, you came from a very economics-based foundation. When did the switch flip that you wanted to apply the things that you were studying in the direction of climate? And was that a gradual process or was there a specific moment where that decision was made? First of all, it happened a very long time ago. It happened uh, almost 30 years ago, 28 years ago. I was, as you say, I was going through an education as a sort of a normal economist. I was studying for a master's in economics at the, here at the London School of Economics. I was thinking of a PhD topic. I was excited about combining economics with environmental issues. So I was keen on doing a PhD on the environment. Why? The environment, sort of back in 1990, the key issues that excited people at the time were ozone layer depletion and acid rain. I sort of wanted to do something that wasn't quite that well trodden. What was it that pushed you in that direction? You said that you were interested in doing something at that intersection. What was driving that? Where did that come from? I was interested in environmental topics. There was something that was close to what I was interested in. I sort of felt I wanted to have a job and to do work on something that has sort of societal benefits. So I didn't just sort of want to maximize my revenue, although I, you have to live and I, I'm not a hair shirt sort of environmentalist, but I did want to have a job where I sort of contribute to a societal good. And so the environment in a sense was the bit that was clear to me when I started off on my PhD. The fact that it was then climate change was sort of a bit more coincidental. I was looking for a a topic, as I said. At that time, at the end of 1990, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change had just issued its first assessment report. My supervisor showed it to me and sort of said, look at this, it's brand new, it's interesting, no economics in it, uh, maybe there's something interesting in that. And yeah, I never looked back. And maybe talk a little bit about 
how is your thinking on the problem and how has the problem in your view evolved? I don't know if evolved is the right word, but how do you think about it today versus how did you think about it when you first started working on it so many years ago? Yeah, that's actually quite sort of important how the topic has evolved over all those years. 30 years ago, it was an interesting environmental problem. It was sort of analytically something that you could sort of sink your teeth in. But it was a problem that was sort of had a 50, 60 year time horizon to fix. So there wasn't the sense of urgency we had today. We talked about sort of the benchmark we at the time was a, a doubling of CO2 concentration as the sort of the benchmark where you would want to stabilize emissions and want to stabilize the problem. And that was 60 years away, 30 years ago. What happened since is obviously 30 years have passed. We got the sort of our sense of importance and urgency wrong by about 20 years. And so now all of a sudden we have 10 years to fix it rather than a sort of a generation to fix it. So what it is now is a is a much bigger problem. It's a much more urgent problem. It's obviously also a problem where you don't have to explain what you're doing. When I started my PhD, I had to tell people that it wasn't ozone layer depletion and it wasn't the investment climate that I was changing. I had to sort of explain what on earth I was doing. All that is no longer the case. People now understand what the problem is. They understand the urgency, but it's also sort of less comfortable than it was at the beginning because it is now urgent and it's become much more scary as an issue. We understand the problem much better and most of what we've learned has made the problem more urgent and more scary than the other way around. And for you personally, you feel more scared now than you did when you first started this work? That's probably true. I don't like the word scared because it sort of tends to switch off. The emotions take over the, the rational thinking and it's good that people have a sense of urgency. It's uh, not necessarily good if people are scared because we have to go about it in a really deliberate, rational, careful manner, a fast and urgent manner. So we don't have time to lose, but panicking doesn't necessarily help. And there's perhaps too much emotions now in climate change. Part of it is good. It's sort of nice to see, in particular, younger generations sort of being really sort of engaged on the topic and changing the dial and the nature of conversation. That's really, really good and really important. But it is also important that we go about it sort of in a rational, evidence-based way. You mentioned that we have 10 years to solve it. As I've made the rounds and talked to different people that are extremely dedicated to solving this problem, I've noticed there's some different perspectives in terms of, on the one hand, there's this school of thought of, let's call it a deadline, 10 years, 12 years, and we need to mobilize in that time frame, and we need to move mountains. And if we don't, then we know it'll be bad. We just don't know how bad. And maybe there's catastrophic tipping points and we don't have time to mess around. I think there's another school of thought that says these deadlines are artificial and we keep moving them back and we keep moving them back and we keep moving them back. And yes, there's urgency, but it's not a World War II style mobilization, actually, we just need to put one foot in front of the other and keep making progress. And it, it isn't necessarily even like a public thing. It's just, it's like a government thing. It's behind the scenes. It's deal-making. It's incremental milestones. How do you think about the term deadline? And how do you think about that 10-year marker? Yeah, I'm sort of careless using the 10 years. I didn't mean it as a deadline. I'm not a fan of that sort of 
you know, we have 10 years or 12 years and the world comes to an end because that's not the way it is. Climate change is a problem that will be with us sort of for the rest of the century, basically, and we will have to deal with our emissions and we have to deal with the consequences of climate change that we no longer are able to avoid from now on. So it isn't sort of that 10 years or 12 years it's over and we've either succeeded or failed. It's a long-term thing. Where the urgency comes in is that a lot of the decisions that we take over a sort of a 10 or maybe 20-year time horizons are very important because we will make a lot of decisions. The world will make a lot of decisions over those decade to one or two decades that sort of determine whether we will find it easy to live with climate change or not. We will invest in a lot of infrastructure in in Asia in particular, in China and India, a huge amount of electricity generation infrastructure will be built. And once you have a power station, these things last for 30, 40 years. So that in that sense, the next decade matters because anything we build and we will build a lot in that decade will sort of lock in a particular climate regime for 30, 40 years. That is a long time. And when you think about the role of the research that you and the team does at the Grantham Institute, and maybe it's even a broader question of just academic research in general, is it to surface information that then enables people to be more informed in decision-making, or is it to actually form conclusions? I would say it's both. As social scientists, we try to understand why certain things happen or don't happen. So we have an intellectual curiosity to find out what makes people pass a climate change act or what makes people object to a carbon tax or what makes people accept a carbon tax. Those sort of issues of intellectual curiosity. But we are also interested in sort of the more normative recommendations. We want to make a contribution to solving the problem. So if we can recommend certain designs of policy instruments and say, look here, if you recycle the revenues of your carbon tax in a particular way, you're not going to get voted out of office. It's going to be successful. Then we do want to do that as well. So it is a combination of intellectual curiosity and the drive to contribute to the solution of the problem. And in your view, how settled is the science at this point? It depends on what level you look at. The bigger picture is there man-made climate change. Do humans emit greenhouse gases? Do those greenhouse gases create radiative forcing? Does that radiative forcing change the climate? That, in a sense, is settled. There's a few dissenters, but the bigger picture science is settled. It's very clear. But at the sort of detailed level, there's a lot that we still don't understand and have to understand better. What is the role of clouds, for example? When do climate feedbacks kick in? What are the tipping points? When exactly do they occur? Those are things we don't understand fully and where a lot more research is needed. And the same is true on the social sciences. There's a a lot of the technologies and the policies that we need that we understand, but there's a lot that we still have to learn. Do you worry at all, like I think about previous generations and some crazy things that were conventional wisdom at the time that then we look back in hindsight and say, how could they have thought that? And do you worry that a future generation is going to look back and look at us so worried about climate change and think similarly? Yeah, there will be degrees of worry. I hope that future generations will forgive us for the Industrial Revolution, which sort of 
was a push in human and economic development and it's brought a lot of good in terms of poverty reduction, quality of life, human welfare. So that was a good thing where you sort of wonder future generations will sort of probably look back and sort of say what took you so long to find out that some of these things are dangerous. Uh, Did you really eat meat? So that's more of your worry. You don't worry about my question then. You're pretty convicted that this is a big problem. It is a big problem. Look, I'd be... uh, in a sense, be happy if somebody tells me tomorrow, sorry, Sam, you wasted your career. You spent 30 years on a problem that doesn't exist. In a sense, that would be a great outcome. The problem sort of goes away. But the scientific evidence is now so clear that the problem does not go away. And we do have to do something about it. Obviously, we might sort of, we still have a lot to learn about the climate system. And we might get nice surprises. We might sort of find out that maybe the system isn't quite as reactive to greenhouse gases as we thought, or maybe the tipping points are a bit further in the future than we thought. That's all possible. But on balance, over the, ever since I started doing these things, most of the learning, pretty much all of the learning on the climate science side has been of the type, the problem is actually a lot worse than we thought. There have been very few positive surprises. There have been positive surprises, I would say, on the technology side, on the sort of solutions side, the speed at which sort of renewable energy has become cheaper, the enthusiasm with which the car industry sort of switch, I don't know whether it's enthusiasm, but they do it with determination, move towards electric cars, the money that goes into batteries, the speed at which those technologies are coming into force. Those are positive surprises. We sort of probably thought this would be taking longer. But on the climate, on the science side, most of the learning has to be in the direction of making the thing worse. That's how it feels to me. I mean, as a non-expert who's relatively new to thinking about this problem, at least in a professional capacity, it's like getting beaten over the head with big bad news, big bad news, big bad news. And then there's like this little shred of good news. And then it's like, hey, let's bring out the streamers and the balloons and pat each other on the back. And it's like, that is in the grand scheme. It's like if there's a tidal wave and you're sitting with a little bucket and it's like, we just got 10 buckets of water out of the boat. And it's like, but that's a tidal wave. I think of it as a race. You know, the news comes in about technology solution or news comes in about societal trends and you sort of feel like consensus is growing. So that's good news. So the solution moves ahead in the race. And then you open the, the latest version of nature or science and you sort of figure out that the problem has moved on as well in the race. So it's just a question of who moves faster. But I'm disputing a bit the sort of the metaphor that we're here with our bucket fighting the tidal wave, because I think we have actually quite a good sort of set of solutions available. There's lots of reports now from people, mostly technology people, but also economists who sort of have looked very carefully about net zero solutions and sector by sector emission source by emission source, looked at what we have to do to take carbon out of our lives and our economies. And in most sectors, we pretty much know what we have to do. We know how one designs a carbon-free electricity sector. We have the technologies and renewables. and We know how to make those systems function and be stable. Increasingly, we have the technologies actually on carbon-free surface transport. They're a bit expensive at the moment, but we know what we have to do. The same is true for most industrial sectors. The same is true for heating. So emission source by emission source, the blueprint exists. 
what we're struggling with in a sense is to make those changes societally acceptable and to have them adopted in a meaningful time frame so one of the sort of eminent people have looked at these things Adair Turner here in the UK he sort of says if you make me the dictator of the world I will solve the problem for you in a sense that's and he would it's just that we don't solve problems by uh, making people dictators so it's the political economy of the problem that in a sense we have to solve in the first instance so people actually ask me now that I'm 10 months into looking at this full time whether I'm more optimistic or less optimistic than I was before I got in. And my answer is, or has been, that I'm actually a lot more optimistic that what you said, that we know what to do and there's things that are in our control if we just do them, but I'm actually less optimistic that we can get them done. And so I guess given that we know what to do, what are your thoughts in terms of what we could do given that we can't just put a global dictator in place to facilitate moving faster, which we sounds like certainly need to do? Yeah, that's sort of, in a sense, the big question, isn't it? Um, There's uh, various things that one can do. I mean, one big sort of driver, obviously, is public opinion. So if you can mobilize public opinion, whenever I give a talk, there's usually a question at the end, uh, what can I do personally to contribute to the solution of the problem? And then you go through the the various sort of personal emission sources you can do something about. You fly less or you insulate your homes and all those sorts of things. But the thing that really drives it that I usually say is engage, be noisy, tell your elected officials that you want them to solve the problem. So we need that noise, that campaign, that contribution. And that's now happening certainly on this side of the Atlantic with Extinction Rebellion and school strikes where there's much more of a sort of a public drive to force politicians to do something about it. Now, at the moment, that's in Europe. It sort of hasn't reached North America. It probably hasn't reached Asia. So we have more to do there. But sort of getting that public buy-in is one big driver that we should work on. The other source of optimism, I feel, is ironically, for some people, I guess, is industry and business. Increasingly, business starts seeing the sort of the opportunity in the whole decarbonization exercise. They sort of figure out that money can be made in electric cars and in renewable energy and the people who uh, solve the clean aviation conundrum will be incredibly economically or commercially successful. That's sort of an important driver certainly in the sort of capitalist market-based system that we live in because all of a sudden the political will to sort of impose policies will become less and less important because the market will just push certain solutions through. Now, I'm not saying that's the totality of the solution, uh, far from it, but it will sort of help to remove some of the barriers that we face. If all of a sudden politicians and the sort of decision makers at government levels feel like industry, government and the population is sort of moving ahead of them, they will start acting. So the question is whether all those processes are quick enough relative to the sort of decadal time frame that we talked about before. So I actually have questions on both of those areas, the public outcry as well as the industry. Maybe we can tackle those separately. So so on the public outcry, why is it that in Europe you have mobilized so much more and quicker and better and more impassioned than in America or Asia or other places? I mean, was it something that you guys did or is it a cultural thing or what can we learn here in the US if it's going to help us to do so? Like, how do we make it happen? That's one of the big sort of research questions that 
from a pure sort of academic curiosity point of view, it would be great to understand it, but obviously it would also be uh, hugely, hugely important for a solution of the problem. I think we understand some bits and we genuinely puzzled by others. When it comes to developing countries, it's sort of an understandable sense that the development and poverty alleviation takes precedence over something that sort of is perceived to be slightly longer term. And there's also the justice issue that sort of says, you guys caused the problem, you want us to solve it. So I can sort of see where the psychology comes in there. That's changing partly because those countries understand now that as vulnerable, if not more vulnerable than the rest of us. And they also understand the business opportunities and the economic opportunities that are involved in that. So I think the sort of the reluctance from the developing countries is going away. Why is the US so different from Europe? That really is an interesting question. It sort of seems to be an Anglo-Saxon problem. The US is sort of the most obvious manifestation of right-wing climate skepticism, and it does tend to be right-wing, usually male and of a certain age, climate skepticism. But we've seen elements of that in Australia and in Canada as well, for example. Older white men? Older white men, yeah. I mean, that's probably sort of a generalization, and I'm sure you find different age groups and different genders and different ethnicities, but that's sort of roughly true. In the UK, that hasn't happened, interestingly. We have our fair share of climate skeptics, but they're sort of much more contained than they are, say, in in the US. And it's hard to say what reinforces what, but there was a consensus about 10, 12 years ago that climate change was an important problem. And so we passed a really good law, the Climate Change Act of 20. 08, which was passed by consensus. We had a Labour left-wing government at the time, but the conservative right-wing opposition was very much in favour. If anything, they sort of asked for tightening the draft legislation rather than watering it down. And in a sense, once that sort of phase was passed, there was buy-in from both sides. And the government changed, and we now have a right-of-centre government, but the commitment is there. And the Climate Change Act, that consensus that was forged in jointly passing that law and feeling ownership over it is still there. And when we've had, there were instances over those 10 years since the law was passed where more sceptical ministers were in charge, but the law was then capable of keeping them in check. There was one instance where we had a climate sceptic environment minister who was in charge of preparing the UK's national adaptation strategy. And he really hated it, but his officials could say, look, it's the law, you have to do it, or you're in breach of the law. And that, in a sense, constrained the degrees of freedom of one individual to derail a process. And so the UK, not only did they pass a law, but you guys set up a government body that's responsible for holding organizations and people accountable to the law, correct? Is it the CCC? Yeah, that's right. It's the CCC, the Committee on Climate Change. And that for me is sort of one of the key innovations that happened in the UK that we sort of as a research institute tried to understand and sort of we came to the conclusion that that was a really key part of what keeps the UK sort of drive towards decarbonisation together. Um, The sort of intuition is climate change is a sort of a problem, a long-term problem. You need really sort of long-term commitment that goes through changes of government to different business cycles. You have to really sort of keep that long-term view. And politicians normally do not have that long-term view. So how about 
putting some of those responsibilities in the hands of technocrats, technical experts that are more likely to see the long-term picture. The sort of the parallel, in a sense, is to monetary policy, where interest rates are not set by the government, by the Ministry of Finance, but they're set by independent central banks. And independent central banks are less prone to reduce interest rates ahead of an election to win votes. They're more likely to sort of have inflation targets in mind. And that technocratic long-term thinking, which seems to work in monetary policy, in a sense was transferred to climate policy. Obviously, the CCC, the Committee on Climate Change, does not have the sort of the powers of the Fed. Uh, the Fed sets interest rates and is truly independent. The Committee on Climate Change recommends climate targets. They are then adopted by Parliament, but the whole system makes it quite difficult or at least embarrassing for Parliament to ignore the advice of the Committee on Climate Change. I love that. It's really interesting to think about what the implications would be if we did something similar in the US. I mean, it's almost like take all the money we're putting towards ICE and put it towards the CCC equivalent instead. The model has been sort of tried out in other jurisdictions. Sweden has an independent committee. Various Scandinavian countries actually do. Ireland, I believe, has one. There were experiments that didn't work so well in Australia. The, the equivalent to the Climate Change Committee wasn't quite as long-lived. And it didn't have the power. I think the system was too young. It didn't have the power to sort of stem the tide when the government changed and reined them in in the way the UK committee has. The UK committee is really, really very powerful now. Everybody sort of yields to the, the analytical advice that comes out of the CCC. I've talked to, we did some research on that, I talked to people in, in sort of high carbon industries who, whom you would expect to be skeptical of the whole thing, but they use the climate change committee advice, both in their own lobbying of government, but also internally when they talk to their own boardrooms. The same is true for sort of environmental activists. They use the same advice. So it's a really, really powerful institutions that the UK has created here. So I guess onto the second part, which was the role of industry that you discussed. I mean, this is a fascinating one for me because, so you're an economist. And if I think about the playing field, there's the role of industry and there's the whole free market crowd that says, don't pick winners and let the market duke it out. And then there's a crowd that says, well, let the market duke it out, but you have to price the externality. And I mean, it's not a level playing field unless you count the tax on the harm that you're doing on the planet, or at least on the planet's ability to, to house human life comfortably. And then there's things like clean portfolio standards and other things you can do that can take certain ones that maybe seem more promising and you can help them along. So, And there's probably a million other instruments and tools and and stuff that I'm not even thinking about. And of course, there's more heavy-handed government regulation, mandates, things like that, back to your, your dictator analogy. So, I mean, you have a master key globally. You can do whatever you want. You're that dictator. Like, given that landscape or maybe other things that I didn't even mention, what do you do? So the first thing to say is, I think we need the private sector to help us solve the problem. But it isn't sort of unfettered free markets that will solve the problem. It's actually a, a sort of a carefully regulated private sector in the way you describe to make sure that any externalities are taken care of and that private sector has the right incentives. But just in order of magnitude terms, the sort of investments we need 
private investment is sort of, yeah, 10, plus times bigger than public investment. And so the idea that through public investment, you could solve the problem and, uh, while leaving private investment untouched, that just doesn't work in terms of the scales of how much there is of private and public. So you do need to harness the private sector and the private investment that is going on. How do you do that? Obviously, as an economist, I would say you have to put the price on carbon. You can do that through a tax or you can have trading schemes as, as you have in California and we have uh, in the European Union. And that's a big part. Certainly in the EU, which is a bit I understand better, the EU emissions trading scheme has changed the attitude of industry towards emissions. They are now monitored, they're now measured, they're now managed. And that is because there is a is a price on it. And that has sort of put carbon, got the attention of boardrooms and senior management to take care of or pay attention to carbon. So that's a huge, big, important thing. It's not the only thing you need. They are sort of free market economists, you say, you put the price on carbon and the rest takes care of itself. That's probably true if that carbon price is unbelievably high, high at the level that probably politically you don't get away with. If you want a level that you do get away with politically, you have to complement that carbon price with other regulations. You have to have rules in the financial sector about disclosure of climate risks. You want nudge technologies that make energy efficiency behavior change easier. You need support for clean technology and innovation just because there are other externalities involved in that. Just to give you an example, some of my colleagues here at Grantham have looked at the car industry and sort of asked, what does it take to change R&D research and development in the automotive sector from the internal combustion engine to electric cars? And obviously the industry is going through that now, but there's a certain sort of path dependence and inertia. If you're an engineer who's sort of studied the internal combustion engine for the last 30 years, you will find it very hard to get enthusiastic uh, about uh, electric cars. So you sense you have to overcome that friction through additional regulation and through additional policy. So you need a carbon price. As an economist, I would say that, but I would be complementing that with a lot of other interventions and a lot of other policies. And when you say that we need industry support, are you talking about industry overall? Are you talking about the big oil majors? Or what is the role of industry in helping with this transition? Actually, I should broaden it from industry and say business, because it does sort of involve everybody. It does involve all economic activity. There's sort of measures around that say, what is the size of the green economy today? And the green economy is then defined as well-defined sort of ring-fenced activities like energy efficiency and water efficiency and renewables. And in a sense, for me, that is wrong because uh, the green economy or the zero-carbon economy that we're going to build involves everybody. It's every sector, every activity has to sort of become green. And a lot of what we do in modern economies is services. So you will need green services. Banks will have to get used to the idea that they're lending money to wind farms rather than coal-fired power stations. Mortgages will be against buildings that are zero carbon. So that makes the finance sector become part of the green economy. Architects will have to build zero carbon homes. Engineers will have to climate-proof the infrastructure they build. So that makes those sectors becoming part of the green economy. You sort of go 
sector by sector, activity by activity, and you figure out everybody has to become green, either through the products they produce or through the production processes they have. So we don't sort of have a parallel green economy that you put alongside the existing economy. It's really changing the current economy from within. So, I mean, given that by definition, your purview is big picture. I mean, it's economics. It makes sense that we're talking about all these different moving pieces that need to change. I think for me, who, I mean, I'm an early stage startup person by career historically, it seems completely overwhelming. It's like, oh man, everything needs to change. So if given that everything needs to change, how do we do anything to make progress? Well, but that in a sense is the beauty of markets. You don't have to worry too much as a central planner that we put in charge earlier on in the interview would have to worry about a hell of a lot of things where if you leave it to markets, each single decision maker, each single company will come up with their own solutions and some of them will succeed, some of them will fail. There's sort of the idea that the decarbonization revolution is sort of a bit like the industrial revolution. It's sort of a it's a makeover, creative destruction, as uh, economist Joseph Schumpeter called it, where new ideas come in and they sort of encourage incumbents into markets and the sort of slightly state incumbents are leaving the market in favor of new, more nimble, more creative market entrants. You see that in the electric car industry, Tesla is a disruptive market entrance. Some of the sort of IT companies uh, who get into that technology, they're disruptive market entrance. That doesn't mean they will be successful. It can still be that the incumbents fight back. And it may still be that people who invest in the new technology lose a lot of money. One of my colleagues here at the Grantham Research Institute is an economic historian. And he looks at deep structural transformations in the past. And he looks at, for example, the arrival of railways and the steam engine. And his observation is that Technologically, railways were a brilliant idea. It was a big step forward. Steamships were a big step forward. We still use them today. You know, that was brilliant technological innovation. But people lost a hell of a lot of money in the railway boom, investing and speculating in railway lines that didn't pay off. It's capitalism will get it wrong, as it were, in some instances. But the sort of the whole creative push of innovation can actually make a difference. Another thing I just would love to get your take on is, on the one hand, there's an argument that says that if you take social justice, equality, and making sure that everybody has a an adequate standard of living at minimum and things like that, that, that globalism has picked winners and losers, essentially, and that in a world of increasing scarcity, that divide will even get further. And therefore, if we want to solve climate change, we need to put just transition or social justice or basically making sure that things are more evenly distributed front and center. There's another school of thought that says these are two separate issues and they're both important, but one is a distraction from the other. And if you want to solve either one, you need to decouple them. How do you think about it? I think that all those things hang together. The way I would put it is climate change is a hugely unfair problem. It's unfair in the sense that those who suffer most are those who have contributed least to it. So there's a big unfairness in the way the sort of the benefits and the costs of using fossil fuels are distributed. So that's in a sense a core issue in the negotiations of how we solve the problem and whom we have to uh, 
support in their decarbonization efforts more than others. But there's also this sort of just a practical observation that we're talking about a deep structural transformation. As I described it, every part of the economy has to reinvent itself. And that's hugely disruptive in terms of the skills that are required. And we shouldn't kid ourselves. If you do hugely disruptive things, there will be pockets of people whose skills are no longer in demand and we have to help them to acquire new skills and, and sort of become successful in the new economy. That's both the right thing to do from a sort of ethical fairness point of view. If you're sort of more Machiavellian about it, it's also the right thing to do to remove the resistance that otherwise comes from those groups because there's a lot of climate skepticism, I suppose, comes from people who are scared of the change and perhaps rightly scared of the change. If you're a coal miner, you do have to sort of face the prospects of losing your job. And so if you can help perceived or real losers of the low carbon transition, it will make the whole exercise much more easy to carry through, but it also makes it more just and more fair. If someone offered you $100 billion, but in order to get it, you have to allocate it towards the climate fight in a way that will maximize its impact on accelerating this transition, where would you put it and how would you allocate it? Probably ask for more money, but assuming I start at that level, there's a couple of technology gaps that we still have. As we talked about before, a lot of the solutions are there and we know what we have to do in sectors like transport and a lot of industry and electricity. But there are sort of a couple of gaps that we do still have and probably start allocating money towards closing those gaps. One of them is negative emission technology, for example, which we do need. I don't like to think of negative emission technology as a sort of a excuse to stop trying to reduce emissions. I'm thinking of it in terms of the problem is so big and the degree of change that we need is so vast, there will be residual emissions somewhere in the system and we need to deal with them. So sort of looking at negative emission technology is a big sort of area where one can allocate funding. And what do I mean by negative emission technology? A lot of it is nature-based. So combining uh, biomass energy with carbon capture and storage, for example, which gives you negative emissions because the trees suck up the carbon. You then burn that biomass and you capture the carbon and, and you don't release it back into the atmosphere. But there are also direct air capture technologies that are, they exist in the lab, as it were, which we should try out in the field. So those are some of the technology solutions where one would allocate money into. We talked before about the need for sort of behavior change and political economy changes. I would ask, uh, sort of allocate the second hundred billion probably into that sort of campaign make sure that we can overcome those political economy constraints and get people to change their behavior. I guess my last question is, uh, there's a number of listeners, maybe all of them, myself included, that are concerned about this problem and trying to figure out how to help. So, I mean, talk to them, talk to us for a moment. What advice do you have? Yeah, we touched about that before quickly. The most important thing for me is to be outspoken about it and to... Uh, Make clear to uh, your whatever decision makers you have uh, you're in contact with that this is a problem you care about and therefore they should care about too. That is their sort of elected democratic representatives who should go to Congress and legislate these things. You're not just a voter; you're also a worker. 
make sure to your employer that you prefer to work in a environmentally enlightened company. People care about the welfare of their workforce, either intrinsically or because happier people are more productive. So you're a worker. You're also a consumer. And so you can send the right signal through your consumption choices. You can tell a business that you have a preference for environmentally sustainable goods by making those choices when you buy a car or when you go shopping in the supermarket or when you go on holiday. So generically, that's the signal you want to send. Then you have specific things, obviously, you can do in your own behavior, travel behavior, in your own consumption behavior, the way you heat your house, how much you heat your house, how often you put the air conditioning on, how often you fly, what type of food you eat. You can make subtle changes there to your behavior. And the point, again, is you can make those without sort of reducing your welfare or your happiness This isn't about hair shirt and living in caves. This is about changing behavior in a positive way that makes you healthier and happier and makes it easier for you to move and breathe clean air and sort of leave a good world for your children. So this is a positive change in behavior, not a constraint. I think that's a really great point to end on. But Sam, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. We covered a lot of ground and had a lot of great insights to share. So I really appreciate it. I know our listeners will as well. My pleasure. It was really nice talking to you and discussing these things with you. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.